Hello everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Himal's fortnightly podcast on all things South Asia, where we bring you a roundup of five big stories in the region and speak to an expert for a deep dive into a major issue affecting South Asia. We are your hosts Raisa and Ritika and in this episode we'll be speaking to Daniel Bosley on Maldivian presidential elections. But first, a roundup of the big stories in the region. This news roundup was recorded on 3rd November and covers the news from 21st October to 2nd November. On the 29th of October, a series of explosions occurred at the Zamra International Convention Center in Kerala during an annual regional convention for Jehovah's Witnesses. More than 2000 people were attending this service. Now already uh three people have died in the attack and over 50 people were reported injured as of the 31st of October. Hours later an ex Jehovah's Witness claimed responsibility saying that the Christian denomination was anti-national. Prayer halls in Kerala, Tamil Nadu and Karnataka have been closed following the blast with prayer meetings conducted through video conference. Shortly after the attacks, misinformation was also spread on social media linking the blast to a Palestinian Palestinian solidarity la- rally led by the Solidarity Youth Movement which is the youth group of the Islamic movement Jamaat-e-Islami BJP leader and union minister Rajiv Chandrasekhar also amplified this unproven theory drawing condemnation and a police investigation as a result of his comments The sole suspect who reportedly turned himself in to Kodakara police was remanded to judicial custody for 30 days by Ernakulam courts Several Indian opposition leaders and at least one editor say that they received a threat notification on their Apple devices warning of potential targeting by state-sponsored attackers. Those targeted include Mawa Moitra from the Trinamool Congress, Shashi Tharoor and KC Venugopal from the Congress party and Priyanka Chaturvedi from the Shiv Sena Uddhav Thakre faction. While Siddharth Varadarajan, founding editor of The Wire, also said that he received the alert. On 31st October Apple said that it could not attribute the alert to any specific state actor and was unable to provide more information on what triggered these threat notification alert as that might help state sponsored actors avoid detection in future despite this privacy advocates say that the alerts should not be dismissed pointing to revelations that Israeli spyware Pegasus had potentially been used to target Indian journalists, rights activists and public officials in 2019 and 2021. In March, the Financial Times reported that India was on the lookout to acquire spyware and was willing to spend up up to USD 120 million for the same. On the 21st of October, Pakistan's former prime minister Nawaz Sharif returned to Islamabad after 4 years of self-imposed exile in London. The Islamabad High Court granted him bail in two corruption cases soon after his arrival. Sharif was first removed from his post in 2017 on corruption charges that he said were politically motivated. He is currently barred from holding public office, but his legal team has indicated that he plans to challenge the ban. Analysts have said that Sharif's return could only be orchestrated with approval from the military, who now see him as a less risky candidate to align with ahead of planned elections. Pakistan has been mired in political instability after former Prime Minister Imran Khan was removed from his seat in 2022 after growing disagreements with the military leadership. 
Sharif, who has also been critical of the military in the past, said he had no wish for revenge upon his return to Pakistan. However, he will face an uphill battle to ensure he can run for upcoming elections and then convince Pakistan citizens that he can effectively address its burgeoning economic crisis. On October 27, an alliance of armed groups battling Myanmar's military junta launched a coordinated attack in the northern Shan state making rapid advances. The Tang National Liberation Army, the Arakan Army, the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army and other armed groups seized controls of the Chin Shuo Ho near the Myanmar-China border and had captured at least 80 junta bases in the Shan and Kachin state as of 31st October. Junta forces resorted to using airstrikes and other heavy artillery in response. The United Nations has estimated that about 6,200 people have been displaced by the fighting, including 600 who fled across the Chinese border. The displaced have become increasingly vulnerable amid the growing conflict between the junta and the armed groups, with at least 29 people killed and 50 injured in an airstrike on the Monglai Khet camp for the displaced on October 9. China's foreign ministry called for a peaceful resolution and Wang Chiahong, a member of China's state council, met the junta's regime home minister, Lieutenant General Yarfei, in Naipaido to discuss the need for peace in the border areas. On the 29th of October, Bangladesh police arrested two Bangladesh Nationalist Party activists and detained Party Secretary General Mirza Fakhrul Islam Alamgir for questioning after clashes during a BNP rally led to the death of a policeman. More than 100 people, including journalists and policemen, were injured and several vehicles were torched during the rally. After two days of violence, the BNP and opposition activists announced a three-day nationwide transport blockade on the 31st of October, and the government deployed paramilitary troops overnight in response. Two BNP activists were killed and 50 more injured during planned protests to mark the first day of the blockade. BNP officials said the activists were shot by police, with the Kishor Ganj police, police chief, Mohammad Rashal Sheikh, claiming that the police fired in self-defense. In recent months, the BNP has been rallying supporters to call for Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina's resignation in order to allow for an interim government to ensure free and fair elections. The protest rallies have drawn large crowds, building on growing public discontent due to the rising cost of living in Bangladesh. And in a good news from the region, a cross-border railway was launched on 1st November linking Agartala in India and Akhora in Bangladesh. The new railway is expected to significantly reduce the travel time between Agartala and Kolkata to just 10 hours. The project cost Indian rupees 1,255 crores, according to the official estimates. The Tripura Chief Minister Manik Saha said that the project was crucial for connectivity in the Indian Northeast and would allow for Tripura to be a gateway for tourism. A good strain had a trial run along the new route on 30th October, with passenger trains likely to begin service later after discussions between the governments of both countries. Maldives' newly elected president, Mohamed Muizu, says he intends to ask Indian troops to leave one week after his inauguration on the 17th of November. Negotiations have reportedly already begun with India to remove its troops stationed in the country. In an interview with Al Jazeera soon after his win, Muizu said the move was a topmost priority for his government. 
around 70 Indian military personnel run radar stations and surveillance aircraft funded by New Delhi in the Maldives, while Indian warships also help patrol the Maldives' exclusive economic zone. Muizu's Progressive Party of the Maldives ran an India Out campaign that was critical of Indian investment in the Maldives and the defence partnerships between the two countries. In contrast, Muizu's predecessor, Ibrahim Soli, cultivated close ties with India. Muizu's election has raised questions about whether the Maldives will seek out more Chinese investment given the tenor of his campaign. When pressed on the issue, Muizu told Al Jazeera he was simply pro-Maldives and was seeking to further Maldivian interests. And that's it for the News Roundup. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting Himal by becoming a member. We are a fully independent, non-profit media organization, and we rely on listeners like you to sustain and grow our work. You can see our membership plans at www.himalmag.com membership. And we've included a link to our membership page in the episode notes below. And now it's time for our deep dive, where we bring in experts, reporters, authors, and field specialists to talk about the important and unseen layers of a big story. Today we have with us Daniel Bosley, who is a journalist and blogger working on the Maldives. He was earlier the editor of the local newspaper Minivan News and co-founded the history and culture website 2000 Isles. A pro-China president for the Maldives. Campaigning on an India Out platform, Mohammed Muizu takes power in the strategic Indian Ocean nation. But can Mali really favor one powerful ally over another? For the new president, now the hard work begins. His campaign rhetoric of India Out may be harder to implement. Some voices are, are lower than others. Um, certainly the voice of, of women has not been very loud in, in this election or, or very prominent. We noted that certainly there wasn't a woman among the candidates. He has said very publicly he favours China. China has been very deeply involved in financing a lot of infrastructure growth. On the 1st of October, it was announced that Mohamed Moizu of the Progressive Party of the Maldives had won the Maldives presidential election beating out the incumbent Ibrahim Soli of the Maldives Democracy Party in a second round runoff. Now, this presidential election was particularly contentious, with as many as eight candidates vying for the top spot. This may have been due to a very public rift within the ruling MDP between parliamentary speaker and former President Mohammed Nasheed and Ibrahim Soli. What can we expect of Maldives' new president? Here to discuss this is Daniel. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for inviting me. So um, most of the headlines about the Maldivian presidential election, at least in the international press, have been talking about it as a tussle between a pro-China candidate, um, that's Muizu, and a pro-India candidate, which is seen as being Ibrahim Soli. But would you say that Muizu is pro-China, as everyone is suggesting? It's a, it's a tricky one because he's uh, he's somewhat of an unknown element at the moment. I mean, as you'll know, that he he stepped in at the last moment to act almost as a proxy for former President Yamin Abdul Gayum, who who was in jail at the time of the election 
charged with their money laundering offences during his his term. So Dr. Moise has has been the mayor of Male, the capital city, and he was um, housing minister under under President Yamin for a while. But in terms of what his beliefs are, what his opinions are, it's it's very difficult to tell at this stage. So I think it's the same with a lot of countries in in the South Asia region in terms of this um, pro-India or pro-China stance. I think it's very it's very pragmatic. So the, there was a, an, an intense India out campaign to buy the PPM. And so a lot of people have, have been asking questions about whether Maldivians are sort of intrinsically anti-India. And I, I don't think that's the case. It's This is something, it's about development, it's about investment. And the, the framing of this election as being pro-India on the one side versus pro-China on the other side. And Mui's, um is, is quite pithy response to this has been, you know, I'm pro-Maldives. And I think that's that does kind of get down to the the, the nub of the issue. A Maldivian leader, uh, Maldivian leaders in the past, you know, as a small island nation, they have to accept that they need to balance things. It needs to be a balance between between regional powers. What happened during uh, the administration of President Yamin Abdul Gayum, as he, because his human rights record was so poor, and um, you'll have seen this in, in other countries, you know, in uh, in Sri Lanka and in Myanmar as well, in particular. When a, a regime becomes kind of intolerable to to traditional Western allies and Western donors, then they will push over to to China because China won't ask as many questions about this. It's kind of it's an open wallet and it doesn't come with these with this overview of, of human rights issues. So what happened with President Yamin is that his human rights record was so poor he had to sort of lurch over to China and you know described it openly as an Eastern Eastern pivot when other nations have, have tried to balance things out slightly more. So what's happened when, when President uh, Soli came in in 2018, he was trying to redress the balance. And you can see that India was obviously been spooked by by this lurch over towards China in the previous five years. And now India has come in with what India can offer, which often is more is less financial and more sort of military. So there were fairly clumsy attempts to to establish a military base in the Maldives. And, and this has got a lot of people upset or slightly concerned. And it's just played into the opposition's hands. So for the PPM campaign, it made sense to push this India out thing and to talk about bringing things back towards the centre. So the pro Maldives thing, I think, is a good is a good way of putting it because if Maldives is sensible and if he returns to the normal leadership pattern of Maldivian leaders, he will provide more of a balance and and you won't get this swing back and forth between India and China because I don't think that's good for the country. Thanks for that and. Apart from that, what would you say are the other social political issues that maybe got glossed over with all the discussion about India versus China, at least internationally? Yeah, I think the main issue is one of law and order in the country. The problems with the gangs were were becoming quite extreme during towards the end of President Yamin's uh, time in office, and it was hoped. President Soli's administration came in that they would they would sort this out. They had a good start, but then things slowed. There were also significant issues with corruption. There was a huge scandal um, that was un- revealed by uh, Al Jazeera in 2016. Almost $100 million from, from lease payments disappeared. It was in relation to this activity that the President Yamin was in jail until a few weeks ago. He's he's out on house arrest now. There were lots and lots of people implicated in that corruption scandal, and yet only really President Yamin and one or two others were ever prosecuted, which made it look less like accountability and and justice and more just like old-fashioned vengeance so people were, i think were very disappointed with that so yeah i think this was the main issue that the india china thing 
I think does feed back into that, as I mentioned, because China did not have a problem with these issues. And if the Maldives reverts to that kind of lawlessness and that those human rights issues, I think China will become the preferred partner because they won't ask those questions. And you've mentioned the alliance with Yamin. And what do you think that means, given Moise's election now? What do you think it means more broadly for accountability, particularly, you know, given that both of them have somewhat checkered records in terms of corruption? I wouldn't describe necessarily what's happening with Dr. Moise and Yamin as an alliance now. Moise was under incredible pressure to release President Yamin from, from jail. He's now on house arrest. Um, but President Yamin himself wanted to be the candidate up until the last moment. He he took it to the Supreme Court. He wanted to run his candidacy from his jail cell. It was only when it became very obvious that that was impossible that Moise stepped in. But even then, I think President Yamin would have preferred the party to boycott the election. So this is not someone who's particularly happy with the situation. It's, it's, it's interesting because um, what we're seeing now is almost the mirror opposite across the political divide of what happened in 2018 when former President Nasheed couldn't run. He was the MDP's preferred candidate, but he couldn't run because he was in jail or he was in asylum in the UK. So he was immediately freed and it was incredibly awkward. He he came back. I mean, if we if we look at the relationship between uh, President Soli and former President Nasheed over the past five years, it's it's been catastrophic. We have had uh, President Nasheed uh, sitting in the speaker's chair in the Majlis heckling his own government and criticizing their progress on corruption and their progress on uh, the rule of law and this Salafi Jihadi issue, uh, essentially acting as a one-man opposition. And their relationship has just deteriorated then. It's literally split the MDP down the middle. So if you take that as a, as a kind of forewarning of what might happen in the PPM's case, I don't think there's going to be much of an alliance between uh, Yamin and Louise. Yamin was out um, at a rally just yesterday, urging, making sure that everybody knew that if the Indian troops uh, weren't removed from the Maldives very soon uh, into his term, that he would be out on the streets with his supporters. I mean, apart from the fact that this contravenes to the terms of his house arrest, nobody seems too concerned about that. But it's clear that he's going to he's going to hold Moise, uh, hold his feet to the fire, and he's not going to be much of an ally. But um, yeah, in terms of accountability, as you asked, uh, mm. it, it's obviously not a good sign. It, it kind of confirms that. There is no real accountability. Uh, everything is so politicized that the, there were there was progress made with the judiciary uh, at the beginning of Solis' term. There was there were changes, significant changes in the Supreme Court bench. But I think you're seeing that this is more of a structural issue. And yeah, when we get down to to the topic of uh, my colleagues and what's happened with them and and the investigation into their disappearance and and murders, we're seeing that the courts don't really seem capable of pushing through these big cases, no more so than they than they were under the uh, dictatorship, to be honest. It's, it's yeah, not a good sign for, for accountability. And yes, you've uh, kind of preceded the question, which is um, my next question was going to be on whether you think there's going to be progress into investigations around the deaths and or in enforced disappearances of journalists and bloggers, including Yamin Rashid and Ahmad Rilwan. No, the short and sad answer to that is no, I don't think there will be. There was a Deaths and Disappearances uh, Commission set up very early in Solly's term. Um, there's tremendous concern now that the work that they did will stop. There are people who are willing to testify, people who put themselves at risk to testify against individuals 
involved in these um, terrorist conspiracies who may now be, be left exposed. There were three individuals, prominent, two of them prominent gang leaders, arrested last year in as part of a terrorist conspiracy to that involved the murder of, of Ahmed Rilwan and Yamin Rashid, or sorry, the likely murder of Ahmed Rilwan, because we, we've never found his body. We don't really know what happened to him. They were awaiting trial. And then I think in the summer, June and July, they were, they were all just released. The same judge, the judge had seen the evidence and he was very happy with it. And then the same judge changed his mind, released them onto house arrest, which is, I mean, incredible. If you think about that, and we're talking about accountability before to the, these men are involved in, these men are threats to the public. They were involved in a, a conspiracy to murder and there was strong evidence and they've been released back into the community. They've already been seen out on the streets. Uh, as I mentioned with President Yamin's house arrest, you know, if there's no political will to to keep someone in jail, then nobody's very likely to enforce the, the terms of a house arrest. So these one charges have been dropped against one of these men already completely. Uh, the other two will be forthcoming very soon if it's not already happened. So, yeah, not only am I concerned that there won't be justice for, for Rilwan and Yamin, I'm concerned that other people will suffer the same fate. Thank you for that. Um, and yes, that's very worrying news for you know, with impacts on human rights, freedom of expression, um, mm. very worrying developments there. And um, I know this is like very early on into Moise's election, but do you have any initial thoughts on how you think his election will impact, you know, what it signifies and how it's going to impact the political landscape? In anticipation of this question, though, I, um, and, and obviously as a foreign journalist in the country, I'm, I'm constantly accused of being sort of very pro MDP, you know, I think that's kind of a, a coded term for just sort of liberal. And yes, I suppose that is true. But if you want to look at perhaps the silver lining of this election, I think the fact that the incumbent lost is something that should be seen as a positive in that, you know, Maldives, Maldivian democracy is only very new. And I think I read some statistics recently about, about democracy in Africa and the, the percentage of incumbents who win. It's something like 90% over the past 30 years. In electoral races, the incumbent will win every time. So if you really are looking for a silver lining in terms of the, the future of the country's democracy, the fact that Maldivians still are free to change leaders every five years should be seen as a positive. But yeah, beyond that, I I don't really see that much to, to that many positive signs in this election because based on the previous five-year uh, term of the PPM, you know, we've talked about the human rights issues. The, the entire leadership, uh, the opposition leadership ended up in jail. We had these gangs running around doing whatever they liked. We had corruption on a scale that the country's not really seen before. So, yeah, another five-year term of the PPM is is not particularly appetizing. But if you look at it from the other from from the other perspective, how the MDP performed in the past five years, I mean, it's my opinion they they lost this election rather than the PPM winning this election. So. This was the first five-year term that the MP MDP had. Their, their first term from 2008 was um, curtailed by a coup in 2012. So this was the first five-year term. They had to really show what they could do to really give people, their supporters, a chance to see what, what five years of, of cleaner democratic governance, what it could bring. And they, corruption issues seemed to be almost as bad. People were extremely disillusioned. So I think it shows that this transition to democracy is is still far from being completed. You know, it's it's not just about holding elections five, every five years. It's about 
this democratic culture it's like accountability as we've talked about before it's about strong institutions and i think this election and and the return of of the ppm and the failure of the mdp show that yeah democracy has a long way to go in the country and it's it's far from assured that it will be a success and in your book um, descent into paradise you've also written about you know the different perspectives and issues raised by the islanders versus those living in male to your knowledge what issues were raised by the islanders compared to those living in the capital that maybe didn't receive uh, much airtime yeah the, i think the divide between people in the islands and people in male is is not as significant anymore or it's not overt politically because people have to spend so much time in Mali everybody's got half of their family in Mali they will spend a significant portion of their life in Mali whether it's for healthcare or education or for work so the pol- politics campaigning doesn't really work on in that way and i personally think it should i think it would be very interesting if there was a party that was more based around um, island issues if you're looking for the party of sort of decentralization that it that is the mdp there's been a clear swing over the past few years and um, between the ppm and more conservative groups who don't really have much of a vision for the country i think this is my main issue with them that it's very as i mentioned at the start in relation to the india china issue it's it's hyper uh, pragmatic there's no real plan and and the mdp at least have have this plan that they want to try and preserve island communities and they want to decentralize the decentralization began after the uh, first multi-party elections in 2008 then obviously was paused after the coup and then president Soli continued it um in the last five years so islanders islanders do want development obviously and development projects are mainly based around sewage systems and harbor construction and uh, generators and things like this it's not it's not really controversial stuff in the islands political decentralization is more important but the main thing is i think they need to get more economic activity in the atolls so there's always a lot of development and especially during election time people will be happy to receive these development projects but then there's not always a lot of economic activity that follows which means that then people inevitably still have to move to the capital so you might have a, a sort of white elephant uh, airport which which is fine but it doesn't really bring extra jobs it just helps people get back and forth to Marle more quickly it reminds me a lot of them um, there's a, a high speed rail project in the UK that was supposed to have similar aims to to help people work away from the capital and in actual fact it just takes people to to and from london more quickly but um yeah the issue with decentralization i think is one that that's very important but also one that leads on from that, which I always wondered why people didn't talk about more, is the issue of renting in Mali. Obviously, Maldives has it's less than 1% land. Uh, Mali is one of the most densely populated islands on the planet. So that means rents are going to be high. And yet, I never hear politicians talking about that. I think it's uh, curious. I think politicians perhaps uh, have conflicted interests in this regard because Maldivians, I- I'm not sure if they're aware of it, but they normally it will take salaries from two good jobs to cover rent for like a two-room apartment in Mali. I think they must be paying some of the highest rents in, in the world. And yet no one seems to talk about that. I think it's very strange. And on a more national level, there's also been a lot of coverage recently on um, the Maldives dwindling foreign currency reserves. Just curious now on, you know, what the situation is and how you think the new president is going to tackle this. 
Yeah, this is something, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I was a, an economics expert, but you can see that the news in, in recent days and weeks, uh, the ratings agencies talking about the, the foreign reserves dropping by 16, 17% this year. The bank, that the central bank talking about how there's just two and a half months worth of uh, imports, because obviously everything has to be imported into the country and fears that the country could default in the near future. This is always an issue with the Maldives because it's um, highly import dependent. And the, while the tourism industry theoretically brings in lots of dollars to the country, you know, which is always an issue. If, if you need your imports, you need your dollars and your foreign, foreign exchange. But um, very little of this money actually enters the banking system because the people who, who control the economy have the dollars and they would like to keep it that way. So they, they keep the dollars to themselves or they bank the dollars overseas and very the, the local economy doesn't receive that kind of um, sustenance from from that inflow of dollars. In terms of what Mui's will do about this, he's again not been particularly clear. I think the general uh, instruction has been from I think the World Bank amongst others is that obviously they cut back on the, on the domestic spending and cut back on the borrowing. So again, I suppose this does bring us back to the India-China issue that the amount of money that's owed to India after five years of, of a more pro-India stance is now equal to that owed to China, although nobody's quite clear what the terms are. This is one of the issues, the repayment terms that are kind of, it's a bit like a black box. Nobody really knows what's going on in there. So repayment's not 100% clear, but obviously that does bring up the fears of the whole debt trap diplomacy thing, you know, that, that's afflicted that Sri Lanka has. So yeah, I think Moise would be wise if, you know, as we return to kind of what we talked about at the start, to have more of a balanced approach and this will involve domestic politics and will involve, uh, you know, as in associated terms, will involve not allowing the human rights and, and the country's democracy to flounder to the point where it, it has to rely on borrowing from China and can't turn to the World Bank or the IMF because that looks like that could be something that's coming down the road. Um, yeah, and that definitely resonant with what's happening in many different uh, countries across the region as well. And something that's also common to many other countries in the region is political instability, which you could say, you know, was a factor, particularly in this presidential election as well, as well as in the past. And do you think that this is going to continue um, going forward under Moise as well? And how do you think the Maldivian Democratic Party is going to respond uh, given their loss. Yeah, I mean, I think instability is the only constant of Maldivian politics that <laughs> I've ever observed. It's very difficult to predict what's going to happen, but you can predict the unpredictability. Um, as we mentioned earlier, I don't, I, I mean, I might be judging harshly, but I, it doesn't appear to me that that um, Moise is going to be a particularly strong leader and he, there is a lot of competing interests you know he's got he's got yarmin behind the scenes that you've got this problem with the gangs and the extremists who now you know are, have complete impunity and will be running wild uh you, you have the resort owners as you mentioned in terms of the um the debt problem they're the x factor in maldivian politics they they stay behind the scenes but these are the people that, that run the economy most of these men will have more money than the government that, that, that from the bigger resort owning cliques so I remember I've done stories in the past where the finance minister will be sort of tearing his hair out one week about about debt repayments, and then two weeks later the problem will just go away. And you'll ask him, you know, what happened, and, and there'll just be something vague about private funds that came from somewhere. And it's very obvious that, that 
some resort oligarch has dipped his hand into, into his pocket and made the problem go away. So when we think we understand what's going on with the Maldivian economy, there's always that factor that's that's hard to see. And I think it's the same in terms of the country's politics, what makes the papers internationally and domestically never really talks about the resort class. But, you know, money talks and, and it makes the world go around and it makes the Maldives uh, go around. It makes it makes this instability or it can stop this instability. So, yeah, I do think it will continue. Um, the Maldives is also, you know, often discussed in the context of climate change as well. Um, and how do you think Moise's development policies might impact the country environmentally, especially given, you know, his recent comments to Al Jazeera on rising sea level? Yeah, the development policies in terms of um, how islands deal with the climate crisis are mainly mainly revolve around getting good uh, sewage systems set up. And, and harbors and making sure the water supply is secure on the islands. These are not particularly controversial. These are things that are pursued uh, under every government that, that I've observed since since I've been covering the country. So I'm sure Moody's will continue with that regard. Um, one of the main concerns I had, and, and this is something that I touched upon or touch upon a lot in the book, is um, the the symptoms of the climate crisis versus the the causes of the climate crisis. So. There's issues in terms of um, what what we're trying to protect, and and the issues of uh, broader issues like consumerism and, and urbanization, and, and these things that are driving the climate crisis all over the world. And in terms of how this affects um, island culture and people's ability to live on the islands, my concern is that when when these extreme weather events and when these washover events and the kind of things that make the islands uninhabitable, when they finally arrive people won't be there for, for entirely different reasons, some of which we've already discussed. Uh, this urbanization, this drive to move to the capital. And I think we're seeing that with the PPM. There doesn't seem to be, as as we said, the NDP have, have tried to push decentralization more. So the NDP and President Yam in particular seem to have no qualms about moving the entire population to the capital, which essentially would be the end of an, of a 2,000-year-old island culture they, they seem very kind of blasé about it they don't seem to think it's that much of a big deal which again is, is a, i think a problem with the climate crisis people not truly understanding the values that are promoting th- this issue not valuing culture for example not not valuing things that are in my opinion are represented by by Maldivian island culture before you go i also wanted to ask whether there are any books, movies, or podcasts that you can recommend to our readers who want to understand more about um, Maldives' electoral dynamics. But in terms of what what I'm reading at the moment, there's um because I've been asked about this India-China thing quite so much. I found a book focusing on this called "The uh, The Costliest Pearl" by an academic called Bertil uh, Lindner, and it's it's really interesting stuff. It's it's kind of a potted history of of the whole issue and uh, and all around the Indian Ocean. So I'd recommend that to people if they if they want to get more of a background on what's happening in the, in the region. Thank you. Thank you for that, Daniel. And thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you want to help us bring you more updates and stories, you can sign up for membership at www.himalmag.com membership. We've got a range of membership plans for you to choose from. You'll get access to our archival newsletter specially curated for you and even Himal's iconic right-side-up map with its startling new perspective on South Asia. And if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of South Asia Sphere, head to the link in our notes to sign up for our newsletter, which will bring you the updates right to your mailboxes every fortnight. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever it is that you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback for the current format of South Asia Sphere, or just want to talk about how we can make it more accessible for you, don't forget to head to the link in our episode notes. We'd love to hear from you. And that's it for today and for this episode. See you next time.